Well, good morning, church family, and welcome to all the guests we might be having with us in the room today. Even those that are online, a special welcome to you too. Look forward to meeting you in person in the next week or two. Uh, we're going to continue through our series in First Peter, so you're going to need a copy of God's Word. Go ahead and grab it and make your way to the book of First Peter, and we're going to be in chapter 2. Now, if you are new here or a guest here and you haven't been with us through the series, just a quick catch you up on where we've been and where the context of 1 Peter is all about so that we know what's going on. Peter's been writing a, a letter for Christians who have now been scattered. They left the big cities of Rome and Jerusalem. They've been persecuted. They've kind of been scattered. And now they're out like tiny islands of faith in a vast ocean of sin and suffering. So in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their trials and their pain, Peter writes this letter so that it can go through the different churches and encourage them and build them up. And Peter's going to be really honest with them, as he is with us, that suffering is, is a real thing, that pain is a real thing, that we're going to experience various trials in our lives. And he does it in every single chapter. In chapter 1, verse 6, he talks about it. Chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 3, verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 10. All of these, he continues to say, there is suffering and pain in the world. But with that, he writes to encourage us and encourage them that there is a living hope through the trials. There's a living hope that we can have in Jesus Christ. And today what we're going to see is that when we feel like we're that tiny island in the middle of that ocean of sin and suffering, there is a firm foundation for us, a living hope that we can cling to. So that's what we're going to see today. That's where we've been in First Peter. But let's go ahead and pick up in chapter 2 beginning in verse 4, and we'll read uh, verse 10. The Word of God says this, As you come to him, that's Jesus, living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you... You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray to him this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your word that's a lamp unto our feet. And Lord, I pray that you would allow your word to be our delight this morning, because we confess that we all, like sheep, we've gone astray, we've disobeyed your word, we've fled, and so we need you to, to lead us and to guide us back to you. Lord, let our souls live and praise you for your mercy that you have extended to us. Lord, set our hearts now to study your word, and our lives to do your word. Lord, may we be convicted of our sins. 
Lord, may we be comforted through your word, challenged by your truth. Lord, would you refresh us today in your living hope? Now, let me give you just a, a second right now to pray that God would do that, that God would refresh you, convict you, comfort you, challenge you today through his word. Would you pray and ask him to do that in your heart, in your mind this morning? Pray that right now to him. Lord Jesus, you are our cornerstone. So help us to build our lives upon you today. It's in your name we ask. Amen. All right, as we walk through this passage this morning that I just read, there's three applications or three challenges that I want to give us as a church this morning. And the first is this, that we need to establish our foundation in Christ. Establish your foundation in Christ. See, the very first probably two-thirds of this passage is all about Christ being the cornerstone. And he is writing these truths to us. If you look in verse 4, he says, as you come to him. That word for you in the Greek language this is written in is the plural tense. It's um, our southern words for y'all, okay? So he's writing this, he's saying, as y'all come to him, okay? This is not singular. This is us as a church, as we, as believers, come to Christ. And I love this, too, because this is an invitation as we come to him. Oh, that we could come to the God of all creation, the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of the hosts. We can come to him. And he calls him kind of two words. He he bounces this analogy around, but he calls him a living stone in verse 4. And then he's going to call him the cornerstone in verse 6 and in verse 7. He's going to call him a cornerstone. What in the world is he talking about? What does that mean when he calls Christ the cornerstone? Well, it's very important. I'm not a builder, so I had to look this up. But understanding what a cornerstone is 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 so important. A cornerstone is the way that you would build a building in those days. You had to have the perfect stone to start everything else because it framed everything. All of your lines were built upon this cornerstone. As you see this picture on there, There's a reason why they called it a cornerstone, right? Because it's the cornerstone, all right? And you would line up everything on that. So the the, the time and the intentionality to to chisel that out to make a perfect stone. It would be the most precious stone of the entire building because everything was built upon it. It would be the most costly stone because of the workers at that time would have to chisel and make it perfect and just right so that everything else could be built upon it. So the the walls that that, that are around the building or only as square as that cornerstone is. What he's saying right here is that Christ is that cornerstone. He is that foundation in which the rest of the house is built on. And he's calling us to look at him as this cornerstone and to fix our lives, to establish our lives on him as our foundation. Now this imagery of, of cornerstone or living stone is is used in multiple places in the Bible. The Bible talks about this a lot. So you see in here the kind of breakdown in verses 6 and 7 and 8. All those are different quotes from Old Testament passages highlighting this truth that our God is a cornerstone. Now this this image that's used, there's going to be two implications, many more, but I'm just going to highlight two from the Word of God about this truth that Jesus is the cornerstone, that he's the firm foundation for all of us, right? This is for us as we come to him. 
all of us, rich, poor, those that seem to be winning in life, those that are losing, men, women, all of us who have trusted in Christ, we come to him as this living stone, as this cornerstone. And it means this, that he is a firm foundation. Because he's the cornerstone, he gives us a firm foundation for our life. Christ as the cornerstone gives us a whole new reference point in which we align every area and angle of our life upon. When he is our cornerstone and we trusted in him through grace and faith and are saved, when he becomes that firm foundation, all the walls, all the halls of our life are framed around him. Our security, our stability, our refuge is all found in him as our cornerstone. So when storms of life come and the wind and the rain beat upon our life, when we go through suffering and difficult times, when we struggle and battle with sin, we come back to this firm foundation that will not be moved. Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. He gives us the firm foundation. Jesus taught this when he shared in Matthew chapter 7 and in Luke chapter 6. Both of them, he talks about this imagery. He uses this parable of this These two men who set out to build a house, speaking of their life, they're building their house. One chooses to build their house upon sand, and one builds their house upon the rock. The one that builds their house upon sand, when the waves and the wind and the storms come and crash and their life is filled with suffering and pain, their house crumbles down. Then Jesus says, but the one who builds his house upon the rock, when the storms come, The suffering and the wind and the waves of life crash down on us. We stand firm and we're stable because of our firm foundation. And then Jesus says, my teachings are that firm foundation. I am that cornerstone. Listen and obey what I've done and you will build your life on a firm foundation. Establish him as your firm foundation. The great reformer Martin Luther in his commentary about This passage, he highlighted the reality, and he says, every one of us right now have a cornerstone for our life. Every one of us. And the cornerstone for your life is the thing when that wind and the waves and the suffering and the pain come in your life that you run to. The thing that you cling to for your security in the midst of hard times, that's your cornerstone. And he goes through a list. When our lives start to crumble, many of us retreat to these things that we think will give us stability and security. He said many of us, We think we have plenty of money, and so we're probably going to be okay even though we're going through a hard time. And if that's where our rest and our peace lies, then it's money that's our cornerstone, not Christ. He also said some of us feel that we have a strong family. And since we have a strong family, my marriage and my family are my cornerstone. Even though this world is chaotic, as long as I have a good marriage and a good family, then I'll be okay. When we start to find those places as our refuge, then that is our cornerstone. Or maybe we just think, well, I am just super talented. I am so good that even if I go through a hard time or a difficult time, because I'm so good, I'll bounce back. I'll always do. And you're finding yourself as the cornerstone and your talent and your abilities. Some of us, it's our morality. We think, well, the good guy always wins, right? If the good guy always wins and I'm a good person, then eventually I'll win. And if that's what you rest in and your suffering and your pain and your hardship, That's your cornerstone. Luther goes on to write, if this is where we 
find our hope. This is where we find our refuge. This is what we find as our cornerstone. All these other areas will be unstable. Every one of them. And if we start to rest our life on these things, what we'll see is that Jesus will no longer be a cornerstone for us, but will be a stone of offense, a stone of stumbling for us. See, because Jesus looked at humanity and he saw the the depths of our heart and where we wanted to place our trust and our hope in. And he said, don't place it there, place it in a firm foundation. And so Jesus spoke to every one of these. And if those are your foundation, if those are your comfort and your peace, then Jesus, you'll stumble over the truth of Jesus. Because Jesus made a comment. He says, unless you hate your family, then you cannot be a follower of Christ. You'll stumble over that. That's hard. That's a difficult truth. And we know it doesn't mean that don't love your family. That's not what it's saying. God's word calls us to love our family, just not to love our family above our God. Not to allow our family to be our firm foundation that really is just quicksand and not a firm foundation at all. If you start to place your faith in your money, Jesus is going to speak to you and you'll stumble over it and say, you cannot serve both God and money. You can't have two masters. You can't do it. You're going to have to pick one and you're going to have to serve one or the other. You cannot serve both. And we'll stumble over that if he's not our firm foundation. If we look at our talent or our morality and think that that's good enough, that that's going to sustain me and get me by, Jesus will say, no, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. You'll stumble over him unless you have him as your foundation. And that's the option before us. Will you see him as the the foundation of your life? Will you establish your life on him and allow him to frame everything in your life? Or will you stumble over him? Many people have stumbled over him and even today do stumble over him instead of trusting in him. And you see in verse 6 that he says, these builders have rejected him. That's what happens when you stumble over something. You stub your toe on something. That's painful. That hurts. You're like, let's get rid of that thing. Let's reject it. Let's get it out there. And you've got to ask the question when you get to verse 7, who is he talking about right there? When the word of God says the stone that the builders rejected, who are the builders? Who's, who's rejecting the stone? Well, we don't have to guess, thankfully. We don't have to think too hard or struggle with trying to find out the answer. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus tells you who it is. Jesus tells another parable in Mark chapter 12. And he tells about a, a landowner. He has all this land and he is going on a trip. And so he allows these tenants to come in and to take care of the land that he owns. And as the owner's gone for a really long time, what happens is he, he sends people back. Friends of the, the owner to check on the land and to make sure everything's good. And the first person comes back and says, hey, how, how's everything going? And these tenants are like, no, 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 no. we got to get this guy out of here. Like, this is our land now. It's not his. And so they beat him up and they throw him out. So the owner's like, okay, well, I'll send another friend. And so he sends another one. And they do the same thing. They beat him up. They throw him out. So he sends another one. The same thing. They beat him up and they throw him out. And so finally the owner's like, you know what? I'm going to fix this issue. I'm going to send my son. Surely they're not going to beat up my son. They're, they're going to know that he's the the, the heir to this property, and so they're going to treat him well since they're just tenants. And then Jesus says, as the son comes, and he goes and he sees the, the people there that are supposed to be just caring for the land, and they murder the son. 
And they say, now we'll take this for our own. And Jesus tells this story, and those that are listening, it's fascinating. Those that are listening to it, hearing the truth of Jesus and what he's teaching, it says that they hear, perceiving the story is about them. So they have enough wisdom and discernment to say, man, he's calling us, the people that are murdering his son. And it says, and they seek to arrest Jesus from that point on. So they ultimately kill the son. The builders who rejected the stone, ultimately Jesus highlights and says that it's the religious leaders at that time. The ones who should have been leading us to the truth, the ones that should be leading us to establish our life on the foundation of Jesus Christ are the ones who are saying, no, 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 no. We'll be your foundation. We'll be the cornerstone. We'll take over. And Jesus says those are the ones that reject. They hear the truth and they reject it. Now, Here's the the living hope of the gospel for us this morning. The reality is that you can stumble over Jesus Christ and still come back to him and find him as your cornerstone. We don't know, but I wonder if, if Peter, as he wrote this truth, thinking of the religious leaders and how they rejected the cornerstone, I wonder if Peter thinks of himself a little bit here. You remember, Peter's name wasn't always Peter, it was Simon. And Jesus changed his name to Peter, which means rock. Changed his name to rock. And then in the, the, the moment when Jesus would need him to stay the closest, Peter denies Christ. Denies him three times. Peter, the one who's supposed to be the rock, hears Jesus teaching saying he's going to go to the cross and give his life a ransom for many. And Peter comes up and is like, no, 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 Jesus, that's not the way. It doesn't work out like this. And Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Peter's stumbling over the truths of Christ's teaching. I wonder if Peter's thinking, man, I know he called me the rock, but I stumbled over him. But now he's been restored, he's been forgiven, he's been redeemed. And so now he writes this letter as a comfort, I believe, to all of us who would stumble over Christ at times. To come back to him, to find him as your cornerstone in which you build your life. And ultimately, Peter would give his life for. Oh, this should encourage us. This is good news for us. That we can struggle and yet find faith in Christ Jesus. Oh, that we would do that. That we would do that. We would establish our life on him. Now, as we establish our life on Jesus Christ, that does not mean that everything goes perfectly. That does not mean that everything is smooth sailing from here on out. That's not what it means. Peter is writing a letter to people who are going through suffering, going through pain, and yet they are faithful followers of Jesus. They are ones that have planted their, their foundation in Christ alone. But for some of us, the, the reality that we need to hear, the truth that we need to hear is all the way back in verse 4. As it describes Christ, rejected by men, but chosen and precious to God. Jesus is the cornerstone rejected by men. He's rejected by men, but chosen and precious to God. So is it possible To be rejected by people and loved by God. Yes, 
Yes, it is. Can you be rejected or feel rejected by the world and still loved by God? Yes, this is good news today. Jesus, chosen and precious, is loved by God the Father, even though the world rejects him. And I believe this is important because people at this time, remember, they're islands of faith in a sea of sin. So look around them. They know that they can come to Christ and be received. Though the world may reject us, Christ receives us. Oh, that we would be encouraged by that. So reject from, from our minds the reality that if we are rejected from the world, then God has rejected us. No. Come to Christ. Find him as your cornerstone and your firm foundation and be received by him. Be received by him. And it is a choice. Don't be confused. It is a choice today. You will either see Jesus as the rock in which you will stumble over and you'll reject, or you will see him as the firm foundation and the refuge for your life. Which will you choose? Which will you choose? And this is what's before us. This is what this passage is teaching us. To establish Christ as our firm foundation. But not only that, once you've established Christ as your foundation, the second challenge, the second application is that we need to embrace our identity in Christ. Embrace your identity in Christ. This passage reveals so many marks of a believer that define us, that show us who our identity is as he is our foundation. And first you see in verse 4 going into verse 5 that you are a living stone. A living stone. Do you see the beauty of this? The imagery, let it sink into your mind for just a little bit. When you come to Christ and you have him as your cornerstone and you're forgiven, what is happening, the visual that should come to your mind, is that God has gone into the, the pit of the quarry. And he's quarried out dead stones from sin and death and hell. And he's brought it up and made a living stone for which he is building into a house. He's building it up. This is what's happening every single time that somebody places their faith in Jesus Christ. We become a dead stone to a living stone that is cemented into the house of God through the grace of God. And this is what's happening. This is the language he's using to describe our identity. We are living stones. And you might read this very quickly and, and you read and go, oh, so he's building me into a spiritual house. I'm a spiritual house. No. You're a stone. You're a stone. You don't make a house. One stone does not make a house. One brick does not make a house. It's being connected to living stones. See, what, what Peter's trying to highlight here is the whole idea of community and connection together as believers. Jesus is not building a rock garden. That's not what he's doing. Jesus isn't coming here being like, oh, here's a living stone, we'll throw it over there. And here's a living stone and we'll throw it over there, and here's my beautiful rock garden. That's not what Jesus is building. Jesus is building a spiritual house of believers that we would be knitted together in community, doing life together. So he's not stacking us as an individual brick to the side. No, when, when we come to Jesus as our cornerstone, we are coming to the house. When we come to God, we are coming to an us. He is knitting us together. And this is so good for us. This identity is so good for us to meditate on because we are living in a generation right now that is stalked 
by being isolated. We are being stalked by being lonely. And we're looking for solutions to the loneliness within our hearts and our life. And God has already provided the answer. He's already bringing about the solution. He is building us together as Christians, as believers. Oh, that we would look to him as the cornerstone and allow our lives to be built upon him. Oh, we would do that. That's what it's inviting us to do, that we would think, to think deeply about that. Now, I know for, for some of us, we've had church hurt in our past, and you hear me talk about community and being unified and being built up as a house, and what you're thinking right now is like, man, I've kind of reached my limit. Like, I'm not going any further. Like, I'm not getting into community because I've been hurt before. And, and I understand, like, church hurt is a real thing. But God has not called us to stand at a distance. God has not called us, us to be a living stone out by ourselves. He's called us to be a part of community. He is building a house. He's building a house. And we need to see that we're a part of that. We're a part of that. And if you don't see this today, I pray that you see this today. That you would grasp the reality of the beauty of the church. Do you understand this? Satan hates the church. The world doesn't understand it. There's a huge misunderstanding about what the church is, what the church does. And Christians have abused the church for centuries. And yet, it's still here. It's still here. Why? Because God is building it. He's building up this house. All that we would see, we can't be isolated and alone. We would come and allow him to be our cornerstone and being built up in those truths. And then he keeps pouring out all these things that are our identities as we come to Christ as our cornerstone. He says we are a chosen race. We're a chosen race. The race of the church is not about skin color. It's not about ethnicity. But at the same time, it does not erase color or ethnicity. You turn to the book of Revelation, you will see when Christ comes again, that their worship before the throne will be somebody from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We will. We will have all different ethnicities and all different colors worshiping Christ forever and forever. It's not about that. The Bible is teaching that it's not about race, it's about grace. It's grace that unifies us. We are a chosen race by the grace of Jesus Christ. And once again, these identities are meant to encourage us in the midst of our suffering and our pain, that we would pause and just rest in these truths of who we are in Jesus. See, some of us are sitting here thinking, I am heartbroken. I had placed this job and getting this job as the cornerstone of my life, and I didn't get it. I wasn't chosen for that job. And you're just distraught. And you need to come to this identity. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, that he's chosen you. He has chosen you. The God of all creation has chosen you, that you would be comforted by that. Some of us have pursued a, a relationship with a boy or with a girl, and you're your heart is broken because they didn't choose you. They didn't want a relationship with you, and you feel heartbroken and crushed. Would you come back to this truth of this passage that the God Almighty has chosen you? He's chosen you. Some of us feel rejected by our, by our kids or our grandkids. They're not choosing to spend time with us. They're not choosing to call us, and and our hearts are broken, and we need to come back to this truth and this reality that God has chosen us and allow that to settle in our hearts and our minds. All that we would look to Him and know this truth. 
Peter's writing for those who are going through various trials of struggling and temptation with these truths. But he doesn't stop there with a royal or a, a chosen race. He goes to a royal priesthood. What in the world does that mean? Does that mean that God is telling us as Christians that this afternoon we should go outside in front of our house, build a little booth, and then go do flyers throughout our neighborhood, like come and confess all of your sins to me? God has told me I am a royal priest, so come to my house and confess all your sins. Is that what he's talking about? No. That's weird. Don't do that. That's odd, right? In order to understand what he's trying to highlight here when he calls us a royal priesthood, you have to understand the Old Testament and what the point and purpose of what priests was. Priests did something intentional. Two things. Pretty much everything the priests did could be summed up in, in this. Their, their job was to take God to man and then man to God. That's what a priest did. So you look at the Old Testament where priests would teach and they would share the word of God with the people of God, taking the truths of God to the people. And then in response, they would do sacrifices to atone for the sin, the sin of the people, so that they could come before God. Now, they couldn't forgive sins. Only God could do that. They atoned for sin. And then you see, this is what God is calling us to do, that we would take God to man and man to God. And the only way that we get to do that is because we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate picture of what a priest does. Think about it. Taking God to man. Jesus, Son of God, comes from heaven to earth. He brings God to man. And then through his death and his resurrection, now there's a way in which man can come to God. And so what we do as a royal priesthood is we proclaim that grace and that truth to a world that doesn't know him. And as we proclaim these truths, what we're doing is we're taking God to man and allowing God to rescue and save man and bring him back in relationship with him. That's what it means to be a royal priesthood. So what is God's strategy for winning your colleagues, your loved ones, your family, your friends, your neighbors to a living hope? The answer is you. You. You are a royal priesthood meant to take God to the people and allow the people to come to God. Now we're not all only just a royal priesthood. He continues to go on. He's a holy nation. Once again, he's highlighting the community aspect again. You can't be a nation of one person, right? We do this as a community together. We do it together. And this holy nation is not so we can thumb our no no noses at people and say we're better than you and we know it. That's not what it's talking about with a holy nation. Several weeks ago, we talked about what holiness is. If you missed that sermon, you can go back and listen to it online. But the short version is, is holiness means to be set apart, to look different than the world around us. And this is what it means as a holy nation, that we as Christians, we as faithful followers of God, we as people who say he is our living hope, we should look different than the world around us. We should look different than the, the community around us. Our community should be drastically different. A book written by a man named Michael Green called Evangelism in the Early Church he highlights this truth of what it means for God's people to be a holy nation, specifically in the early church. And he goes through a list of things that, that show how the, the people of God lived differently than the culture around them. But he boils it down to two things. Two things that made them effective in 
sharing the gospel and seeing a tiny sect of people grow to impact a nation and the world. He said the two things that set them apart was holy lives and open mouths. Holy lives and open mouths is what changed the nation of Rome and the world. He goes on and gives a a list of all these different specific things that made their lives holy, made them look different and set apart from the world around them. He said they had integrity. Integrity. They, they were known for being honest and transparent in all of their dealings, and that was different for that culture in that time. They were known for their generosity, for people who were not just generous to employees, but to everyone, to their neighbors. They were a generous people that gave. They were set apart and holy because they were very hospitable. People in Rome at that time would never, people, never welcome people into their house to share a meal. That cost them money. But the Christian church was very hospitable, inviting people in that they didn't even know. Pastors through their town to share a meal. They were hospitable. They were also known for their sympathy. The world was very ruthless in their business, never ready to forgive or to reconcile. But they found in Christians people who loved, people who forgave, people who reconciled relationships and were never vindictive was different than the world around them. They also had sexual purity. That set them apart as different. They had no sex outside of marriage. They had a fidelity inside of marriage. That made them very different than the Roman Empire that would have multiple women as their wives. They also were seen set apart as different in the way that they handled adversity. They handled suffering different than anybody else in the world. And the lost culture looked at that and they're like, wow, how, how do I understand and get that? They are also faithful in seeking equity. They were caring well for others and for the common good of their city and their community. And as I'm reading through this list and I'm looking at this book, I'm thinking, man, are we famous for any of that today? Are you famous for any of that personally? This is what we're called to be. We're going to be set apart and different from the world around us. Another identity that he gives us here, as we live like like a holy nation, we are a people of his own possession, verse 9 tells us. Or some translations say we belong to him. Oh, the beauty of that, that we belong to God. The one who created us and made us and gave us the physical life that we have, the breath in our lungs, is the same one who we trust in him when we believe in him and he gives us eternal life forever and forever. The one who spun the stars into the universe is the one here that says that you belong to me. You belong to me. And the way that we can belong to him is through the precious blood of Christ. Through his precious blood, now we belong to him and he to us. And this is encouraging. We have a place to belong. So let us establish Christ as our foundation. Let's embrace the identity that we have in Jesus Christ. But lastly, let us excel in our purpose for the glory of Christ. Look back with me at verse 9. After he's given this list of different identities, different names of who we are in Jesus, he tells us that there's a purpose for it. There's a reason. Did you see that? We are a people of his own possession that, or some Bibles say, so that, 
You may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are saved, we are sanctified in order to excel in the purpose of glorifying God by proclaiming his excellencies. Proclaiming his excellencies. That happens in two places. Both inside this room and outside this room. Inside this room, we as believers, we we praise and we sing and we declare, we proclaim the excellencies of God Almighty. We do that. That's the reason why we sing songs on Sunday morning. And the Word of God in the book of Ephesians tells us, you're not just singing only for God. You're singing to help the believers around you. So yes, you raise up your voice to praise Him because He is praiseworthy, but then we listen to others that are praising God around us, and it should stir our hearts to remember the excellencies of God. So in this room, we, we loosen our tongue, we open our lips, we sing to the Lord. And they don't, we don't just need my voice to proclaim the excellencies of God. We don't just need our worship team's voice, as great as it is. We need all of us, as the spiritual house of God, to lift up and to proclaim the excellencies of God. We would worship Him in that way. Now, one of the reasons why I think we might struggle to do that is because we don't, we don't really grasp or understand how we've been rescued and saved. You see, if we think we are just uh, pretty moral people that need a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on our life to like clean us up a little bit, then we will really struggle to proclaim the excellencies of God. We just will. But when we realize the reality this passage is teaching us, that we were in darkness and he has brought us into marvelous light, when we grasp that reality, we grasp that truth, then it is so much easier for us to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into light. And this is not something that we, we achieve by working hard enough. We receive this good, glorious light that God would shine upon us. In verse 10, he says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It doesn't say once you had not achieved mercy, but now you have achieved mercy through your holiness and your acts and your morality. No, 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 no. This is a gift of God to us. This is a gift of God that we receive his mercy. We come to him. And we can proclaim his excellencies because we know the great mercy of God that saved us. And so church family, very tangibly, very practically, this is what we're going to do as we take the Lord's Supper. We are going to proclaim the excellencies of God together. This, what we're about to do as we take the Lord's Supper, is a reminder of God's mercy that we receive. That we receive his great mercy, all these identities are received in Christ Jesus. And the book of, Colos- or the book of um, 2 Corinthians will tell us that as we take the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming something. We're teaching something. We're sharing something. And I love it because it talks about it in the past, the present, and the future. We're proclaiming something, whether you realize it or not as believers. This is a big deal as we take the Lord's Supper. We're proclaiming what Christ has done in the past. As we look at this piece of bread, it represents the body of Christ that was given for us on the cross. As we look at this, this cup, we remember the blood that was shed for us. 
And we are saying, as we take this as believers, we're proclaiming, man, look at the excellencies of God, that he would extend his mercy and give his life for us. But then in uh, the Bible, it also tells us that we proclaim the excellencies of God in the present, that we know we're forgiven of our sins because of the death of Jesus Christ, that he removed our sins from us. And this is a, an assurance of our pardon. So as we confess our sins like we're going to do here in just a minute, minute uh, quietly before the Lord, we're proclaiming, we know that God has forgiven me of those sins. But then it also tells us in Corinthians to continue to do this until he comes again. And so what we're doing as we take this is we are saying we are believing and trusting and proclaiming that Christ is coming back. He's coming back again. He's going to make all things new. And so we proclaim, we proclaim the excellencies of God as we take this. Now before we pray and confess our sins, I just got to say this is important because this is not Ryan's supper. This is the Lord's supper. And so he gets to send out the invitations to who gets to take part in this supper. And the Bible is really clear that those who take the Lord's supper are those who believe in these truths. That have partaken in the mercy of God. This does not make us more righteous or more holy. It's because we are righteous and holy because of what Christ has done for us. So if you've never trusted in Christ, then, then let this pass today. Or even if you're young and your, your kid's there and they're wanting to take it but they haven't trusted in Christ, then use this as an opportunity to share the gospel with them of what it means to trust in Christ. But for all of us who have believed in Christ, those who have him as our cornerstone of our life and our firm foundation, then we get to take this now proclaiming what God has done what God is doing, and what he will do. So church family, let's pause now and let's pray, confessing our sins, knowing that we are forgiven because of what Christ has done on the cross. Let's pray to him now, asking him.